It's quite a um, it's quite a shocking passage of scripture, that actually, isn't it? Sometimes I guess we might be a bit familiar with it, and so it it just kind of washes over us as it's read to us. But it's it's actually quite a it's quite an outrageous passage of scripture. Really, wonder what your gut reaction was uh, as you you heard it. I mean, you know, for, for starters, if if we've if we've had a view of Jesus that he's a bit of a timid kind of a guy, uh, well, you know, and, and popular culture, I think, has that view uh, of Jesus sometimes. That, that doesn't really fit with the person that we see here in these verses, doesn't it? A, a, you know, a person who in verse 15 gets, gets violently angry and, and starts throwing stuff around and makes a, a cord, a whip out of cords. That's quite shocking. Isn't it really? Um, if if uh, if you were here last week, uh, we looked at the first half of this chapter, and if what I termed the wine sign <laughs> at the beginning of the, the chapter, verses one to twelve, if if that uh, if that sign uh, put to bed one caricature of Jesus as being a bit of a killjoy, uh, you know, as he turns gallons of water into vintage wine. Well, these verses uh, probably ought to put to bed another caricature that we might have of Jesus as being a bit of a timid sort of a guy who, who wouldn't say boo to a goose. That doesn't really stack up with these verses here, does it? Here we see um, an angry, passionate, zealous Lord Jesus presented to us. And, and if his angry action isn't outrageous enough, you then get, in verse 19, his astonishing assertion, this, this claim of his that destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again, which is some claim, isn't it? It's quite outrageous. What, what are we to do then with a passage like this? Well, I think before we can work out what we should do with it, we need to discover why Jesus did what he did. Why did he do what he did in verse 15 and why did he claim what he claimed in in verse 19? That's what we're going to try and and unpack here for for a few minutes. And, And I think that as we try and do that, what we should see is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. So if you're here last week, the first half of chapter 2, we looked at Jesus' first miracle, this changing of water into wine at a wedding feast uh, in Cana, and we saw that Jesus did that sign to display his glory, verse 11 uh, tells us. In other words, to show people who he is, that that he's God's Messiah, his Christ, his his anointed saviour and king who's come to rescue and restore his people to God forever, which is something pictured uh, in the Old Testament as like a, a bridegroom coming to his bride to, to rescue her and, and bring her to the wedding feast to end all feasts. This is who I am, Jesus is saying in, in that first uh, 12 verses. And, and John wants us to know who he is so that we would believe in him or trust in him and so have life with him forever. That's what he explains at the end of his book. And and so if the first half of the chapter shows us that Jesus is that promised Messiah, the second half, uh, I think, tells us the kind of Messiah that he is. And, and, you know, this morning, discovering that may not necessarily be a very comfortable thing for us. So let's have a look, first of all, at verses 13 to 17 and and this angry action that that John tells us about. In fact, if you just flick back to uh, to verse 12 there, you you can see that that after the wedding in Cana, Jesus goes to to Capernaum with his family, his his mum and his brothers, and and with his disciples. Um, And and then after staying there for a few days, he goes up to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. 
Uh, we, we were thinking about that in the, in the kids' talk, weren't we? And, and if you know your, your Old Testament uh, scriptures a bit, you, you might remember the first Passover was back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament when God's people were held captive uh, in Egypt and, and the king, the Pharaoh, refused to let them go. And so God acted, didn't he, in judgment and in rescue. So, so first, uh, the first thing God would do would be to pass through the land of, of Egypt in judgment. He would kill the eldest sons in the land. But the second thing that he would do would be to rescue those who obeyed him. Uh, and he would do that by killing a lamb, and, and, uh, or rather the people were to kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of their homes so that when God passed through the land, he would pass over those homes where the lamb had died. In other words, the, the lamb was a substitute. The lamb would die in the place of the eldest son. And, and ever since that time, each year Israel celebrated this, this act of judgment and this act of rescue with this festival, the feast of, of Passover. And that's where Jesus was going here in, in verse 13. And it was a massive affair, a, a huge festival, the whole city heaving with, uh, with worshippers who were flocking there for, for the same reason, and, and not only from kind of the countryside, the, the regions around, but also from Jewish communities in other countries uh, as well, such, such that when Jesus got there and went up to the temple, what he found was, was that the temple courts kind of resembled a, a marketplace. You can see that looking in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out, out, out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples and told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Um, so, so because you've got all of these people kind of flocking to the, the Passover, you actually need a, a pretty sophisticated setup to deal with the needs of, of these people when they arrive. They, they need animals for sacrificing in the temple. So you need the animal traders. Um, people were coming from far and wide. They were trading in different currencies. So that had to be exchanged so that temple taxes could be paid. You, you needed the, the money changers. So, um, uh, you know, that was a, you know, it was a big operation and, and also a very necessary uh, operation and Jesus isn't really complaining about that. He doesn't say that he's got any problem with the necessity for the animal traders or the money changers. I, I don't think he's making any issue here with their honesty um, either. I know uh, the the other gospel records, uh, the, the the synoptic gospels, they they record a second time. I think close to the end of Jesus' ministry, where he also cleanses the the temple. Uh, that he, he says there, they turn it into a den of robbers. Uh, but actually, I, I don't think that is the event that John is, is recording here. Um, and, and it's not the honesty of what's happening in the temple that seems to be the concern here. Um, but, but what is the concern then? What, what makes him angry? Well, he's, ang he's not angry because of the activities themselves, but because they're taking place in the temple. That, that's, that's the issue. Verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of trade. In, in other words, how, how dare you turn my father's house into a, a, a market? Do, do, do you see? Um, so, so he's angry because the purpose of the temple in Jerusalem was to be a symbol of God dwelling with his people and also a symbol of God's inaccessibility 
to his people. So, so the, the temple was the only place where they could come and, and meet with God. But in order to be able to do that, there were all these temple sacrifices and, and rituals that they had to go through, which were a constant reminder to God's people that first they needed their sins paid for if God were to dwell with them there. In other words, the, the, the temple should have been a place of worship and, and prayer and, and teaching. And, and as God's people came there from, from far and wide, they should have been reminded of God's holiness and, and of their sin and, and the price that had to be paid in order for God and his people to, to be able to meet together, to be reconciled. But, but instead of being a place like that, the, the, the temple authorities had, had allowed it to be turned into a marketplace. And, and you know, we, we know what marketplaces are like. Uh, don't we? we? We were up in the Lake District a few weeks ago. We went to the Keswick Market, which is open a couple of days a week. And, and uh, that kind of reminded me of what marketplaces are like. They're loud and noisy and bustling, aren't they? There's, there's traders shouting out, giving you special offers and two-for-one deals and, and whatever. Um, and and, and that, that, that's what those places are like. In, in other words, the temple rulers here, they were more concerned with having a, 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 a smooth operation than they were with God being approached in the right way. So they turned the temple, the dwelling place of God with his people, into a, a bit of a sham. And, and that's, that's kind of massive contempt for God, isn't it? It was a case of, you know, we're, we're going to do it our way to, to meet our own logistical, organizational needs. And, and God will just have to fit around us. And, and Jesus was angry about that. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? You see, Jesus' concern, his passion here, is that God is glorified and, and not mocked. He had such a concern, such a passion for the glory and the honor of God that he was righteously furious when, when he witnessed contempt for God instead. I think that's what's going on here. But we, we need to be careful, don't we, in how we apply this to ourselves, I think. Because we, we could be tempted simply to see the application as being kind of, uh, Jesus was passionate for the glory of God, and so we should be as well. Um, and, and of course, that's, that's true enough. But I, I don't think that is what John primarily wants us to see here, is it? If you have a look at verse 17, where, where the disciples witness this angry action... What happens? They remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So, so John doesn't say that they witnessed Jesus' action and they remembered that they should be passionate for God's glory like Jesus was. doesn't say that. No, the angry action of Jesus reminded them of a passage in the Old Testament that spoke about the coming Messiah. That's the point. You see, verse 17 there is a, is a quote. It's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, which was written a, a, a thousand years before Jesus came along by, by one of Jesus' ancestors, King David. And, and many of you will know that, that, that King David is, is presented in the Old Testament as a, as a forerunner of Christ. Uh, David was God's anointed king. He was the one who'd come to rule God's people um, and, and whose life points them to the king that God will one day send. And, and the psalm describes how David is consumed by zeal for the house of the Lord. And so as Jesus, here in John 2, comes into the temple and cleanses it in, in the way that, that he, he does, their minds are brought back to that psalm and they're thinking, wow, 
Is, is this the Messiah that, that was promised? You know, the one who would be consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord, like his, like his ancestor David. Is this guy Jesus the one? Because it, it certainly looks like it. But, but of course, this problem with the temple rulers turning God's house into a, you know, a place of empty religion instead of a place of genuinely meeting with God through repentance and prayer and, and teaching, that, that wasn't a new problem that the temple priests had been renowned for doing this for, for centuries. And so not only King David, but, but actually the Old Testament prophets as well, they, they looked forward to, to a time when, when God's Messiah would come to the temple and cleanse it. So uh, the prophet Malachi talks about this. He talks about the messenger of the Lord in, in Malachi 3 who will come like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap, and, and cleanse the temple in judgment and restore the proper worship of God there again. Do, do, do you see? So, so, so what John wants us to see here is not primarily an example from Jesus about how we should be concerned for the glory of God, although, of course, we should. But what he really wants us to see here is how Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament promises about the coming Messiah. He's the one. And not only that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but John wants us to see the kind of Messiah that Jesus is and that he comes as the owner's son to cleanse his house, to clean up and to judge you know, that, that whole temple system that never really did what it was supposed to. So friends, maybe you can see here how how Jesus uh, is God's promised king, but come not only as the bridegroom to give us a restored relationship with God that's pictured like the wedding feast to end all feasts. We saw that in, in uh, verses 1 to 12. But Jesus is also the promised king, come as the returning owner of the temple to cleanse and to judge. And that's a more sobering assessment of Jesus isn't it? Maybe that's a more uncomfortable Messiah. But look, he doesn't just come to cleanse the temple, because um, if you have a look a bit more closely, you'll see he actually comes to replace the temple. Um, you, you can see this as we, we move on to kind of the second outrageous thing in the passage, really, which is this claim of Jesus in verse 19, that, that destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we, we've seen the angry action. Here's the, here's the astounding assertion in, in verses 18 to 22. And, and notice, notice the response to Jesus' judgment here. Um, because on the one hand, the, the religious rulers here, they don't deny that Jesus was right in what he said, do they? But on the other hand, they're not exactly responding with humble repentance either. But rather, what they want to know is, by what authority has Jesus done this? That's what they're getting at in verse 18. Uh, by saying, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're effectively saying, who do you think you are, Jesus, to, to have done something like that? By what authority do, do you come in and cleanse the temple? Show us a sign. Give us a miracle to, to prove that you have the authority to do this. Do you see? To which Jesus responds in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days 
I will raise it up, which is quite a thing to say, isn't it? You know, talk about following up an outrageous action with with an outrageous assertion. It's quite a staggering claim to make. And and of course, they are assuming, unsurprisingly, that what he means by this temple is the one that he's standing in front of, the one made of bricks and mortar, the one that he's just kicked everybody out of. And, And so they obviously think that he's gone bananas. Verse 20, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're saying if, if we knock it down, you, you'll rebuild it in three days? They, they think he's bananas. But they've misunderstood, haven't they? You know, J- Jesus couldn't be talking about that temple, could he? he? He would never seriously think that that Jews would knock down what took them 46 years to build just to call Jesus bluff. And of course he wasn't talking about that temple, because verse 21 tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, friends, Jesus is claiming to be the temple. And and that is radical, isn't it? Um, uh, 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 Think think about it this way. Um, Wherever you go across the world, whatever country or culture you find yourself in, Uh, whatever point in history people have always had an awareness haven't they of there being a god who who made us Um, and and that firstly we 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 need some way of of meeting with him so that we can know what he's like and that secondly we need some way of being made right with him you know of of the gap between us and him being being closed in some way and and so no matter how people have conceived of god for for example you know one god or many gods or a person or a spirit or a higher power or an inner consciousness or whatever people have recognized that somehow we need to know about him and have the gap between him and us bridged in some way and and so in just about every culture people have created places where those two things can happen they've termed them holy places you know shrines or temples or so on. They, they might be natural places like holy rivers or pools where people can go and, and ritually wash, could, could be that. Or, or there might be man-made places like mosques or temples or monasteries where, where people go and offer sacrifices or prayers to, to achieve transformation or, or whatever it might be. Some people even go into church buildings for the same reason, because they think it's a holy space, a place to meet with God there. And be made right with God there. Maybe that's the reason you're here this morning. In which case we ought to notice quite carefully what Jesus is saying here. Because he's standing in front of the temple in Jerusalem. The only place where a Jew could go and meet with God and be made right with God. And he's saying effectively, no. Now that I'm here, I'm the temple. I'm the place where you meet with God. And are made right with God. That, that temple, that big building behind me that took you 46 years to build and, and which you love and revere so much. Don't go there. Because you won't meet with God there now. That's not where you'll be made right with him. You need to come to me. I'm the temple now. And, and, and do, do you see what's happening there? Because Jesus is not only acting to cleanse the temple, he's claiming to replace the temple. 
He's, he's hinting at here in this passage what he will spell out more fully in, in chapter 4 when he meets with the woman of Samaria at the well. That, that things are changing. That, that everything that the temple in Jerusalem was, was signifying and, and, and pointing to, well, that's now fulfilled because Jesus has come. That the place to meet with God and be made right with God is no longer in the temple. The temple's redundant now. It's surplus to requirements because Jesus is here. And and so it's in him that we meet God. It's in him that God now dwells with his people because he is the true temple. The one, the, the stone temple in Jerusalem was only a foreshadowing of, only a pointer to. And, and it's in his body, the true temple, that the ultimate and final sacrifice will take place. That will make temple sacrifices and, and, and all, the, all the religious trappings that went with them just completely redundant. It'll, it'll mean the end of religion, the end of holy places. Because as he will say to the, the woman of Samaria in, in chapter 4, you won't need to worship in the temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else for that matter, but instead worship is going to be in spirit and in truth. In, in other words, it's not going to be geared around a building anymore but around a person. And Jesus says, that person is me. I'm the one. And if you want a sign, here it is. Three days after you destroy me, the true temple, I will rise. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's just put himself in a position where his claim to be the true temple can be verified. If they destroy him and three days later he rises, well, they'd better believe in him, hadn't they? And friends, that's, that's why, actually, all the claims that Jesus makes, uh, the, the, the whole of Christianity, it, it stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection. If if Jesus is indeed risen from the dead, he is the true temple and and the way to, to, to meet with God and be made right with God. But if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, well, he's not who he claims to be, and, and he should be ignored. You see, this, this outrageous claim is verifiable, and, and Jesus completely intended that it be so. And if you look at verse 22, you can see that that this is the reason why John and and the other disciples ultimately did uh, believe in Jesus. Look at verse uh, 22 there. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, after they saw him raised from the dead, they remembered what he'd said and they remembered the scriptures And they believed. And and you know, friends, for us too, the the weight of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is huge. It's it's one of the uh, surprising things that people find when they do actually bother to investigate it. (laughs) Um, uh, Some of you, probably older ones, I I would imagine, um, might remember a a, a lawyer, a guy called Sir Lionel Luckhoo. I think it was about 20 years ago that he passed away now. But he, he, he was famous for being a lawyer. He then turned into a politician. But he made it into the Guinness Book of Records. I think he's still in the Guinness Book of Records 
with an unbeaten record as a lawyer of 245 consecutive acquittals in, in his murder trials, which is quite a, quite a record, isn't it? If there was, if there was anyone who, who knew what reliable and convincing evidence looked like and, and, and was able to destroy any evidence that wasn't uh, uh, robust enough, well, it, it was this guy. He was, he was dubbed the most successful lawyer in the world. And, and he was challenged to apply his, his legal mind to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he did that. He spent years doing it, actually. Um, and, and this was his eventual conclusion. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is so overwhelming, it compels acceptance. You know, it's not that we should believe it because he did. But, you know, if somebody as adept as as him at at, at, uh, analyzing, evaluating evidence could conclude that the evidence for Jesus' resurrection was so overwhelming that it compels acceptance. Well, friends, shouldn't we at least give it some serious evaluation for ourselves before we dismiss it. After all, Jesus' claim here is that he is the way to both meet with God and be made right with God. And and the truth of that claim stands or falls on the truth of his resurrection from the dead. Do Do you see that? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the search for how you meet with God and are made right with God ends with him. You don't have to look for it in religious buildings or rules or rituals because Jesus has come to do away with all that. You just have to come to him. Now, of course, the religious rulers here, they didn't get it. They failed to respond to the coming of Jesus by turning and trusting in him. And instead, they just kept on in their religion and ended up putting him to death, destroying his body. But isn't it amazing? That even as they put him to death, he was willingly going to his death and going there in order to put the final nail in the coffin of of that whole religious system that they were trusting in. So friends, please do not make their mistake. Don't think this morning that you can find God in a religious building or or made right with him through rituals and and rules. But rather notice how the, the disciples here responded granted it took them till after his resurrection to really get it but when that happened verse 22 they remembered what he had said they put that together with the promises of the scriptures and they believed and and friends for you today you will find God in the scriptures as they point you and reveal to you the person of Jesus Christ the true temple the person that we need to come to, to know God and to be made right with God. So so do do you see here the, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is? He's no timid Messiah, is he? But he's he's passionately concerned that God is glorified and not mocked. And, And he's the Messiah who comes not only to rescue, but to judge. And he's also the Messiah who comes to bring in a whole new way of knowing God and being made right with God. And it's not through religion, it's through him. Friends, that is brilliant news. It's brilliant news if you will turn and trust in him and believe him and give yourself over to him. But it's also challenging news, isn't it? Because it forces that question upon us. How will we respond to him? 
Will you examine the evidence of his death and his resurrection? Will you examine the signs here in in John's gospel, the scriptures that point us to who he is and what he's done? Will you listen to his words and believe in him so that you would have life in him? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, our prayer as we, as we come away from this passage um, is that you, by your spirit, through your word, would so work in us that we might come away from here, uh, yes, with a, a greater understanding of who Jesus is, but more than that, a greater trust in him alone to lead us to you and make us right with you. And Father, we pray this so that we might abandon trust in ourselves or or in religion or in what we do to save us and might instead trust solely in your Son, the Lord Jesus, your promised Saviour and King. And we pray this in his name.